0: Hello, everybody. We are clocked in with the press at Altman Studios in Brentwood, California, and welcome to the show. We're here to spread some news, spill some tea, and speak some truth that might not be supported by the press. In this podcast, I'm going to share both facts and opinions, and you have a right to agree or disagree with them. Either way, we're set to have a good time for a short time, as our episodes are long enough to keep you informed and short enough to keep you entertained. I'm your host, Caitlin Gleason, clocking in. Let's hear some top stories of the week. The Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office released the results of its investigation into the 2018 in-custody death of 34-year-old Michael Hernandez. The investigation concluded that there was insufficient evidence to support a criminal prosecution of Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office Deputy Eric Vauter and Deputy Brian McDevitt. No charges will be filed against any officer involved in the incident that took place in the early morning hours of October 30th. According to a social media post from the sheriff's office, deputies from Delta Station responded to a report of a female screaming for help on the 3500 block of Wells Road in Unincorporated Oakley shortly before 3.30 a.m. on October 30th, 2018. The DA's report stated that Hernandez ran out of his residence naked and carrying his three-month-old daughter. Witnesses said that he ran down the street with his daughter in a threatening manner. Hernandez was seen physically harming his daughter, claiming to try and remove an alleged devil from within her because he believed she was possessed. He repeatedly screamed that he intended to end the child's life. Several bystanders subdued Hernandez until Vauder arrived on the scene at 3.38 a.m. When he arrived, witnesses were holding him down. Vauder placed handcuffs on Hernandez, who was on his stomach outside his residence. McDevitt arrived several moments later, and both deputies attempted to speak with Hernandez. When he did not respond, the deputies rolled him over and saw him foaming from his mouth. The deputies determined that Hernandez had no pulse and they removed his handcuffs to render emergency medical aid. The DA's office concluded that no physical force was used by the deputies during the incident, nor were they responsible for the death of Hernandez. The forensic pathologist who conducted the autopsy determined Hernandez died from complications of acute cocaine toxicity. Next, in a measure that's timely to say the least, the East Bay Regional Park District has received a direct appropriation of $13.5 million in the California state budget to fund wildfire prevention and fuel reduction needs in the East Bay Hills. $10 million will be used to remove dead and dying trees, a concerning development that has been detected especially in Anthony Chabot and Reinhardt Redwood Regional Parks in Oakland, Miller Knox Regional Shoreline in Richmond, and Tilden Regional Park near Berkeley. The remaining $3.5 million will be used to purchase equipment that will improve the district's ability to fight fires, including the replacement of the district's aging helicopter, which is used to drop water on fires burning in inaccessible terrain. With COVID-19 cases rapidly on the rise, leaving unvaccinated individuals at risk for serious illness and death, the health officers of Contra Costa, Santa Clara, and San Francisco counties strongly urge all employers to consider implementing workplace COVID-19 safety policies that require their workforce to get fully vaccinated as soon as possible. For any employees who are not yet fully vaccinated, employers must require and enforce masking under current state law. In addition, employers are encouraged to require frequent COVID-19 testing of unvaccinated employees. The relaxing of community and workplace transmission protections since mid-June in California and the rapid spread of the Delta variant of COVID-19, which is much more contagious than the original strains of the virus, have led to significantly higher case rates and a higher risk of transmission at businesses and workplaces as a result. Employers can play a critical role in ensuring a safe workplace environment and boosting vaccination rates among working age individuals by requiring vaccination as a condition of employment with very limited exceptions for medical exemptions or strongly held religious beliefs. Lastly, legal pressure has prompted Oakley leaders to begin the process of changing the selection process for city council members. The switch would replace the current at-large election process with a system in which council members are elected by a district that each would represent. The change comes on the heels of threats of a lawsuit from a Southern California-based attorney alleging that Oakley's current voting system violates the California Voting Rights Act, or CVRA, by fostering an arrangement that dilutes the Latino vote. The CVRA, signed into law in 2002, bans at-large election methods that impair a protected class's ability to elect its selected candidates or influence an election outcome. Attorney Kevin Schenkman sent a letter to the city threatening legal action if it did not voluntarily change its at-large election system. Schenkman represents the nonprofit Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, the nation's largest and oldest nonpartisan Latino voter participation organization, which he says includes Oakley residents. Several other state entities, including the nearby cities of Antioch, Concord, and Martinez, have voluntarily adopted ordinances to transition from at large to district based election systems after facing similar demands. Those were the top stories of the week. For the story of the day, the NCAA passed a policy that allowed athletes to make money off of their image or likeness or name. Michelle Brutlikosik, the Associate Director of Communications and Media Contact for the NCAA, released on June 30th a statement about the change in NCAA policies. Effective on June 1st, college athletes and recruiters can utilize their names, images, or likenesses to make money. This policy was passed and specifically articulated that it was legal for college athletes to engage in this activity no matter where their school was. However, despite this new policy, the NCAA was adamant that pay-for-play was still banned. Division II President's Council Chair Sandra Jordan stated, quote, "...the new policy preserves the fact college sports are not pay-for-play." It also reinforces key principles of fairness and integrity across the NCAA and maintains rules prohibiting improper recruiting inducements, end quote. Here to talk with us further on this subject is the sports writer for the press, Kyle Szymanski. So, first of all, Kyle, how long have you been writing for the press?
1: It's been about eight years.
0: Eight years. And so were you always working on sports or did you write for um, perhaps different topics earlier on in your career? You know, I don't know if I'm like
1: all journalists, but I've just always loved the news. Mm-hmm. And I've also loved sports. So put those two together and you find me. <laughs> all right.
0: Awesome. And so obviously student athletes have a fine line to walk between name and likeness and images compensation versus the idea of pay for play. So how would you differentiate the two methods of compensation?
1: Well, I think it's first of all, I think it's very important that we learned that the new NCAA guidance Allow students to engage in the name, likeness, and image activities so long as they are consistent with the law of the state where the school is located. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if if the state doesn't have a a law in place, they can go ahead and uh, participate anyway. But um, in terms of the two different, how to differentiate Mm -hmm. the two, um, in a nutshell, I think students and athletes are not going to be actually... Paid for playing mm-hmm. on the field, and they're not also going to be paid for being able. Like a college can't say, "Hey, come to my school, and I'll, um, you know, give you ten thousand dollars." So basically, it's going to be outside sources that are going to be paying for these, uh, paying these students.
0: Got it. Okay, so it's not so much that a student can make, say, a you know thirty thousand dollars salary from the school for playing for them, as much as they can just you know make money off of, you know, their Instagram page or, like, merchandise or things like that. Exactly. Okay, okay.
1: But in an interesting twist, they can hire professionals, Mm -hmm. marketing people to help them kind of grab those opportunities.
0: Mm, yeah, for sure. And so, obviously, you know, there are the different ways in which a student can monetize their, you know, names and images and likenesses or NILs. Um, they can host camps or they can stream and become influencers. They can have their Patreons and their social media. They can have merchandise. You know, so considering all of the options that they have, how do you think that a student can best benefit from the NCAA policy?
1: Well, I think the sky really is the limit. When you think about um, – One thing about college-age students Mm -hmm. is that they they know how to be creative, and they know how to market themselves. Mm -hmm. Think Snapchat, um, TikTok, Instagram. So really, they can um, kind of along that same wavelength. I feel this guy really is the limit with this new deal because the possibilities are endless. Mm -hmm. There's a boatload of money to be made on social media, commercials, photo shoots, hawking products, Mm -hmm. cheeky catchphrases, right? And for those that are a little less media savvy, you can – Whole camps Mm -hmm. autograph autograph sessions or possibly just you know hawking a product through right companies using your
0: name yeah so there's just like a lot of options that they that they really have i think so all right and so um since you engage with the youth sports community quite often especially here in the east bay area um how do you think this policy is going to be a game changer for high school student athletes that graduated this year
1: well, you know, I think that students, they need this much needed income, right? So there's no question about that. But um, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. The, I think the colleges and the mar- uh, companies are going to have to really kind of collaborate to teach them the marketing ropes. Just think, you know, athletes can make money while in college and potentially spiral this experience into income mm-hmm. d- down the road, right? So, um perhaps companies will find marketing jewels that they can use for years or if it doesn't work out for the athletes they have that marketing experience that they can gain from
0: right okay so it's something that can come into play later on for example if uh, you know a High college football player becomes a professional football player. They have that media experience to make money off of their NILs and stuff. Absolutely. Okay. And so um, in the NCAA, there is a lot of complicated policy when it comes to communicating with athletes during particular periods of time or be- before they reach a specific grade. Um, With how heavy the NCAA cracks down on communication between colleges and athletes, how do you think this new policy would play a role in that dynamic?
1: Well, I think there's, first of all, there's going to be a lot of rules, Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of them I don't think are really established,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and that means that the NCAA and entities across the nation are going to have to collaborate to really educate students on what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And as we know with everything, um, new things create problems. Or opportunities. So it's really a kind of an open field to see how things play out. I think students might be able to pick up on some opportunities that are later kind of banned Mm -hmm. uh, in terms, you know, maybe companies give athletes way, you know, a ton of money. And on the other hand, maybe they, you know, don't give them as much money and the policies have to be kind of altered.
0: Mm, Okay, so what you're saying is that because it's such a new policy, it's almost like new territory and there's a lot of things that could be done now that the NCAA might have problems with later. Exactly. Okay, okay. So before we continue further into that story, we're going to talk about a different one, and that has to do with popular scams that seem to be making an appearance this summer. So to list off a few, we have the social security scam, where they will call you and tell you that your social security number is suspended or leaked or has some type of problem. Don't believe it. This one time, we can say that snail mail is good, And it's probable because of the fact that the Office of Social Security will send you mail before they call you. So if somebody calls you and says your Social Security number is compromised, it is not the Office of Social Security. Second of all, we have gift card scams. So Kyle reported on the story in Discovery Bay where an 80-plus-year-old man almost lost $400 to a scam. According to the story, he believed he was going to give $400 worth of gift cards to PayPal to prevent false loans from being taken out in his name. Kyle, why don't you break this story down further for me? Yeah,
1: so this little old man um, got an email Mm -hmm. from Sears, in in parentheses, um, saying that he was going to have a computer dropped off on his doorstep in 10 minutes. Well... The guy knew that he hadn't shopped at Sears for two years, Mm -hmm. and he kind of felt like it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. He didn't know quite yet that it was a scam, but he felt like it was a mistake. So he jumped on the computer to search for a PayPal phone number, Mm -hmm. and somehow, through his searching, he came up with a fraudulent PayPal phone number. This really set the scam in motion. Mm -hmm. He called the fake phone number and got a PayPal representative who was actually a scammer, and... The scammer convinced him that he needed to pay or go to the store to get $400 worth of gift cards. So, of course, he, he does it mm-hmm. because he believed them. S- Thankfully, a Safeway employee kind of said, well, you know, what are you buying these for? And stopped the transaction. The, the elderly man was uh, up, was upset with the clerk, mm-hmm. but uh, Safeway refused to sell them. So he... Called the sheriff's office, and they, of course, confirmed that this was a scam. The sheriff's department actually ended up calling the phone number that the elderly man used, Mm -hmm. and it turned out that it was definitely a scam. So, all in all, you got to remember to be careful out there.
0: Okay, and so you're telling me that he got a fake laptop. They managed to put a fake phone number on Google, which he happened to find. And then the whole thing was set in motion. And the only thing between this man and $400 worth of gift cards was a Safeway employee that happened to catch on before it was too late. Exactly. I mean, props to the Safeway employee. Exactly. That's called customer service.
1: But I, think uh, <laughs> I do think it's important to for people to remember that the email actually, it said it came from Sears. But when you kind of clicked on it, mm-hmm. it came from some email address with 14 numbers and 13 letters got it okay (laughs) so there's
0: there's usually some type of hint or idea that you can get from it that it's not a legitimate email or not a legitimate provider absolutely okay okay All right, and so to list off even more scams that are popular this summer is the IRS call. The IRS likes to call you and tell you that your taxes are awful. Um, The IRS will not call you. They will send you a sealed envelope, and then they will tell you that your taxes are awful if they really are. Um, And then the next one actually is a car insurance call scam. These people will call you and say, there's something wrong with your account. Or they will say, your insurance account is bad, but they will never say their name or your name. So don't trust it. I know this is a call because I think I get it like three times a week. Um, And it's just always the same script. So Kyle, how have you in the past dealt with scams that you've received, either scam calls or emails?
1: Well, it's never really, it's never good to lie in life, Mm -hmm. that's a general rule, but for me, I lie a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody knocks on the door and says, you know, can I speak to the person of the house? I say, sorry, you know, I'm visiting, or I'm taking care of the house. Mm. And I've also lied about my age and said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm 17, or I'm underage, I can't talk
0: you know what? I do the same thing. I'll get the call and they're like, hi, your car insurance is bad. Like, can we talk to the car owner? And I'll be like, um, I'm 16 years old. Can you take me off the phone list? And it's probably like, you know, like as a Christian, you know, it's probably bad, but like a little white lie to save my phone bill. I feel like, you know, Jesus can forgive me. Uh, but I guess I'll find out (laughs) eventually if that's true. Back to the story though. Um, Obviously, athletes being able to make money off of their NILs is a really good thing, but let's talk a little bit about any possible cons that student-athletes need to look out for. So, for one, I think social media awareness is going to be absolutely huge. Since athletes can now essentially market themselves as influencers to garner a following or sell memorabilia or give away autographs, etc., you know, they need to keep in mind that, you know, they are now in a fishbowl and that people are, you know, looking at them and looking at what they tweet or what they say or what they post. So being smart about that is obviously going to be important. Um, is there anything that you can think of that athletes need to look out for as they enter into this, you know, marketing world?
1: Well, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how students manage their marketing opportunities versus their school and athletic Mm. uh, commitments. Right. Because for me, think about it. If you have an opportunity to make $10,000 on a commercial, that's kind of beats running laps in the sun at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So I think that's going to be key. I also, it's going to be interesting to see how the different opportunities develop for a student. Mm-hmm. It, will this, will all students get this opportunity or will just the top ones that, you know, football, basketball, baseball, the ones that, you know, people are really interested in, mm-hmm. you know, are they going to be the ones that are going to be um, getting it? And I also think it's going to be interesting for the coaches mm-hmm. because how do you manage practice when you have 18 students, supposedly, if you're like, let's say you're top ranked college football team Mm -hmm. and you have 18 students that have marketing deals how do you arrange that around a practice that's supposed to be on at 3 p.m.
0: right right because who's gonna want to do like 100 squats when you could go get 100 followers that is a good point Um, I think another thing actually students probably need to look out for is like thinking about like when it comes to taxes and keeping track of all of those monetary transactions and gains as it's going to have to be something that they'll have to report during tax season and probably to their school when they're filing for scholarships because then those all kind of become assets. And then this also makes me think though about what you were mentioning, mentioning earlier when it comes to institution policies and how the laws for states and the laws for schools aren't necessarily going to be enforced by the NCAA. And so what that means is that, you know, just because the NCAA is okay with it doesn't necessarily mean that the institution is going to be okay with it. And so, you know, lastly, we have to think about what this all really means for athletes. And I think that this gives them a chance to learn the ropes of publicity that they might be able to experience as professionals, but it also allows them to gather exposure to help with, you know, recruitment purposes. You know, when they're trying to apply from high school to colleges and things like that. But what do you think is your personal takeaway and opinion on all of this?
1: I think it's a fantastic opportunity for the students. It's long overdue, but at the same time, with money comes problems. Mm-hmm. So I think the NCAA marketing agencies are going to have to really work together to try to limit. The influence that this is going to have on students because at the end of the day, students need to go to school Mm -hmm. and they're obviously there to play sports as well. And this isn't just, you know, a Mm -hmm. marketing deal.
0: Yeah. You know, so TLDR is stay in school, kids, um, and have a lot of fun when it comes to this NCAA policy, but also just make sure that you do your research before, you know, going too far into these actions. So that's it for today's episode of Clocked In with the Press. We appreciate your support and we look forward to sharing more information with you next week. What are your thoughts on the NCAA new policy? Have you recently experienced any scam attempts? And how do you deal with scams when they appear before you? Make sure to follow us on Facebook at thepress.net or on Twitter or Instagram at pressclockedin. Let us know what you think. We want to hear your opinions on these subjects. Thank you so much for your time and I look forward to next week. This is Caitlin Gleason, Clocking Out.